This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Attorney General Peter Narona, thanks so much for your time this morning. It's good to be with you, Bill, as always. So there's a lot on the table here, but I kind of wanted to blast through a couple of key issues. I guess first and foremost, you know, you've got this situation where, um, you know, you've you've emerged as a social media star of sorts here yeah. in Rhode Island and beyond. And, and it's a great way to communicate not only information, but also express opinions. I mean, after all, it is politics. I know there have been some people who have been critical of that. Among them, Judge Procassini, really yeah. specifically around one particular tweet, there was you know, some back and forth on you appearing before him. You had said maybe in chambers that hearing was pushed until tomorrow. And before the hearing, the scheduled hearing, there's a scheduled hearing to see if the First Amendment overrides the fact that you should have to appear to begin with. So I guess walk us through where that is right now, because it is sort of a, you know, it's an interesting scenario. So, yeah, so so I'll walk you through that. So I have a lot of respect for Judge Procassini. Um, apparently, we disagree about um, about this issue of whether the uh, state should consent to jury wave trials. I mean, he may have a specific issue with me, but he hasn't identified it, so I can't really respond to that. Um, but I will say that that uh, I believe that, that uh, the prosecution, the public, because the public is uh, working through the prosecution, should have the right to consent or withhold consent from whether a trial in a criminal case will be before will be before a jury or a judge. And the reason for that position that I take is principled. The Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, has held over and over and over again that the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, prefers that a jury, not a judge. A jury of one's peers be the fact finder in a criminal case. And that's why in the federal system, the government, the prosecution does have to consent and can withhold consent. And that's true in 31 states. Rhode Island, for whatever reason, uh, does not allow the prosecution to object. I, have a, I, have a, I take issue with that. And I take issue with it further because if we went back and studied the last 10 years, and in the last 10 years, uh, uh, 56, um, two judges have uh, overseen 56% of the bench trials, meaning non-jury trials in criminal cases. And the other 25 or so judges have overseen the remaining four, 44%. So I'm going to say that again. Over 10 years, two judges have done 56% of the non-jury trials, and the other 25 judges or so have done the remaining 44%. And those numbers uh, I think speak for themselves. There is something there that um, the, those numbers tell a story. What it tells us precisely, I'm not sure of, but what it, but what I think is a way to, at a minimum, eliminate that imbalance is just for us to be able to withhold consent as the Constitution prefers, as the Supreme Court has held, and as is the practice in federal court and in 31 other states. So uh, Judge Procassini has ordered me to appear in front of him, apparently because of something I said on 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 um, on Twitter about jury wave trials. He appears to have taken offense at something I've said, but I don't know what that is. I don't know what the authority under which he is summoning me as a constitutional officer for saying something about that issue. And so we've objected to it because I think at a minimum I ought to know why he's calling me over there. Um, again, I'm the attorney general. I am not, uh, you know, in my position, I think I have an obligation to speak to these issues. No one else is going to speak to them with the kind of credibility that the position holds. It's not about me. It's about my position. And so we'll see where, where it takes us. If, if in the end, um, you know, he or the Supreme Court uh, requires me to appear in front of him, I will. 
And uh, to the extent he allows me to say my piece, I'll say it. Uh, to the extent he doesn't, I'll say it outside the courtroom because I continue to believe that that's my that's my uh, that's my uh, right, and I also feel like it's my obligation. It's interesting the specific issue at hand here. It's almost something that you would think a journalist would have pursued at some point, and maybe has, and I just didn't see it or couldn't find it. But well, well, well. Funny you say that uh, because I've I've raised this before with certain investigative journalists, and they haven't done it. And so people say, well, why tweet? Well, if no for no other reason. If for no other reason, this issue is now squarely before the public and they can express their views or not. The General Assembly can express their views because I'm going to bring it before them as to whether or not the public ought to have to consent. Because think about that for a minute. Think, think about this for a minute. Let's just take the case that Judge Procassini oversaw. Uh, so a district court judge, the lower court judge, because the charge was a misdemeanor in that case, uh, a district court judge found the defendant guilty. Uh, the defendant has a right to appeal to superior court, presumably to get a jury trial, right? Otherwise, why do it twice? It's a misdemeanor after all. And so then it goes up to the superior court and the jury is waived. The government, the state, doesn't have an opportunity to withhold consent. And so a different judge finds the defendant not guilty. Now, whether it's Judge Procassini or Judge Isherwood or Judge A or Judge B doesn't matter. The fact is, try explaining that to the victim. Uh, there were two trials. The victim went through two trials in this case in front of two different judges and got two different outcomes. And it, it shouldn't come as a shock to anyone that that victim is incredibly confused. As lawyers, you know, I've seen a lot of things that I can't explain, but I think victims deserve better than that and at least deserve an, expl an explanation that makes sense. And it's hard to find an explanation that makes sense uh, coming out of that, those two decisions when they are just the total opposite of one another. And there's just no explanation for it, except two different judges found two different things. And it's an interesting example because a, a good portion of the matter at hand was videoed. And of course, that creates a situation where you go, well, wait a minute, before and after what happened, before and after the camera was turned on and off, at the same time, the public, the people have had a chance to kind of observe what basically took place in this incident in Barrington. And there was a charge of a hate crime and it it becomes a becomes a bizarre outcome, like you said, when you have two totally different opposite decisions. Well, it is, and you know, Bill. The other thing that that I will say that uh, that strikes me, and at some point, and I'm glad you're bringing it up because I, I was going to speak about it the next time I'm speaking in a civil rights context. There was a lot of outcry when this case first happened, and we took it very seriously. It, you know, if if we were to go back and and, and go back to that that point in time. The victims were not convinced that the system, the criminal justice system, would uh, fight for them. And and there were, there was a series of miscommunications, frankly, with the with the with the police department. And that's no knock on the police department. Look, that happens. And look, hate crimes are sensitive things, and they are difficult cases. And so when I saw the way that case was going, meaning the victims had no confidence that they could get justice out of the system, on a Sunday, I sent my two best people down there, the people I trust the most, the people I've worked with for longest. Uh, they were with me at DOJ. They're with me now, Steve Danbrook and Adi Goldstein, to turn that case in the right direction, meaning that the victims would believe that the system would fight for them. And so... Uh, I feel like we responded to the moment. I feel like the community responded to the moment. What what strikes me is that there has been very little community response 
to the ultimate outcome in this case. And look, it, perhaps the, the public has lost interest. Perhaps the media has lost interest. But if you go back to two years ago, there were marches in Barrington. There were protests in Barrington. Um, and here we are two years later. You know, the facts, in my mind, aren't any different. Two, one judge found one thing, another judge found another. And yet the, the public response uh, to the verdict in the second trial was, was really diminished to the extent it existed at all. And it's really become about whether Peter Nerona tweaked Judge Procacini or not, which is not where the conversation should be. The conversation should be about these victims and whether they felt uh, they achieved justice when one judge found one thing on the facts and then the second judge found something else. And, you know, it's just really difficult to explain those that those kinds of outcomes to victims. It's, it's for sure a moment where just a few years ago you had it, the, the case at hand was broadly, hey, there's parts of the state, there are certain neighborhoods where people say that basically if you're not white, you're not welcome. That was the broad stroke allegation that this situation fell under. And you're right. I don't know if it's fatigue a couple of years after the murder of George Floyd. Just in general, people have moved on. They're less engaged. But, you know, there is a there's something about it that now the conversation is about you and something you put up on X or Twitter, however you want to frame it. Yeah. And look, for me, it, it, you know, I don't feel any differently about that case today than I felt two years ago. It's an important case. It was an, an important uh, that we fight for victims, you know, those victims in that case, of course, in particular. And regardless of the outcome you know, we'll stand with those victims and we would fight for them again. And I hope that they know that. And, you know, we're, we're not, we're not, um, we're immune from the ebbs and flows of, of public, uh, of public uh, enthusiasm or concern. We, we have a job to do in every one of our cases. And I have such confidence in the men and women who work in the office. They, they, whether it's this case or you want to step, you know, back, 10,000 feet and look at what they have accomplished over the last four or five years. I wish the public had more exposure to them. And I think if I try to do anything in the next three years, uh, I'm going to try to get uh, them in front of the media a little bit more. I did an interview on lead paint with Keith Hoffman last week. Uh, Keith Hoffman is an outstanding lawyer in our civil division. We are blessed to have him. Uh, Stephen Pravaza, I tried to get to come with me to a consumer interview last week, and he, he unfortunately was working for home. We are so lucky to have Stephen Pravaza with us. He left Wilmer Hale, one of the best law firms in the country, to come work for the people of the state of Rhode Island. Um, you know, I think if I try to do anything over the next three years, it's going to it's going to be to introduce the people uh, of the to introduce the people in my office to the people of the state, and they'll know they'll know the quality of the people that are working for them. It's almost like within your office, there's even just starting with the inside baseball level of Rhode Island politics, a lot of within that, I don't know how many people that is, if it's 500 or 5,000, whatever it is, a lot of the characters that just happen to work in the governor's office or around communications in politics or whatever the case is, those are almost household names within that small bracket of people, that sub bracket of political Mm -hmm. politicos, we'll say. Yet, I don't know if you polled all of those 5,000 inside baseball people, how many names would they be able to give you of people who work inside your office? It would be way lower than the amount of people they could say work for the governor or, you know, we're on a campaign as a spokesperson or whatever the case is. It's, <clears throat> yeah, it's so true because, you know, our, our office is full of professionals. You know, it's, 
I lead them, but they also, in a sense, lead me. I mean, they led me to um, understanding how important uh, lead poisoning was in the state and what we could do about it. These are names nobody knows. Nobody knows Nick Vaz's name, but Nick Vaz is the one who fought for them uh, when Rhode Island Energy was being sold by uh, Rhode Island Energy bought Narragansett Electric from the grid. It was Nick Vaz who brought $200 million in value back to Rhode Islanders. It's Sarah Rice and Julia Harvey that are fighting right now to save Roger Williams and Fatima Hospital. It's Stephen Pravaza who's gone to court to stop Greco from adding charges to people's, uh, adding charges, unnecessary charges when people buy a car. It's Keith Hoffman who's leading our lead paint initiative that's saving children from lead poisoning. And then you go over to the criminal division, you know, I, I think of a guy like John Korg, and not many people know of, know John's name, but John handles almost every drunk driving death case that we've got. Some of the most sensitive, important cases, John has handled those with distinction for 20 years. And I can keep going. Meg McDonough has trained half of my young lawyers brilliantly. I mean, you know, Tim Healy has done such a fantastic job. These are sort of middle managers, you know, the sergeants in a, if you will, in a military organization that, that you know you need to lead your young lawyers. And our lawyers are young because people don't stay any longer. You don't get the, the great retirement you used to get. So you know you're going to have turnover. I was talking to Tim White, Bill. And I reminded him that that when he first interviewed me uh, about being AG, uh, one of the things I said to him was, uh, we're going to have turnover. And what we know is we have to train our people really well and recognize that every five, six, seven years, you know, we're going to turn people's jobs over because they're going to leave for the private sector. But to the extent we can get great service out of them for those five, seven, ten years, uh, then that would be a good thing. Yeah, even a Providence Journal article this week, Katie Mulvaney, more than 150 employees have left the AG's office since 2019 and the impact that that has on Rhode Island. It's real. It's it's real and it's happening in real yeah. time. Yeah, I'll, although I'll say this, Bill. I, you know, I read that article with some, um, uh, some amusement because I didn't see anything in there about what it meant for Rhode Island. Mm. You know, what does it mean for Rhode Island that I've had turnover? Well, what it's mean, what it's meant is that we've had to manage that turnover and we've had to really step up our recruitment efforts. But one thing that Katie Mulvaney never did was come in and talk to me about uh, that turnover. And one thing she never did was come in and talk to any of my people. You know, I think, I think everybody in the media knows that we're accessible. You want to come in and talk to our new lawyers? Come in and talk to them. We've put out release after release about the people we're hiring and how outstanding they are. And the Providence Journal hasn't picked up one of them, including Katie Mulvaney. You know, I'll, for example, the, the last four people we hired right out of law school came from Yale, Boston College, Roger Williams, and I believe NYU. That's an outstanding class of lawyers, okay? There's not, I've got nothing against Roger Williams University Law School. They're a good law school. They're a good law school, right? They're a middle of the pack law school. That's just who they are. I don't want all Roger Williams law students in my office. We've got a lot of them. They're great, but I want diversity of thinking and thought and talent. And we have totally stepped that game up. And so when I read that article, what does it mean for Rhode Island? What it means is we have to be good managers. What it doesn't mean for Rhode Islanders is that they don't get results, whether it's uh, environmental protection or consumer protection or healthcare or prosecution or energy, we're on it. And I think the results, uh, shore access, I mean, you know, you name it, we're everywhere. We're doing stuff I think the office hasn't done in a long time or has ever done. Really proud of that work. 
And, and again, as, as I said, I read that article with some amusement because I didn't quite get the point of it. You mentioned healthcare. That's certainly one of, I would say, your signature issues. There's another Providence Journal article that Rhode Island's AG seen as a likely contender <laughs> for governor in 26 toils over healthcare plan. There's a lot of aspects to healthcare. I mean, you can talk about the monopoly that was proposed in, in our healthcare systems that you really intervened on or primary care health, health provider availability. There's a lot of trickle down effect here. Just quickly on, you know, an overview of healthcare broadly. I mean, I know we could spend five hours on that topic, but yeah, we what, could. where you see it yeah. right now from your standpoint. Yeah, look, I think, you know, first of all, our work on healthcare really doesn't have anything to do with what I might do in three years or what I might not do. What it is about is that I am absolutely convinced, um, based on our prior regulatory work, that our healthcare system is in a bit of a death spiral. Doesn't mean it will die, but it means if we don't turn it around, it could. So I'm really worried about about Roger Williams in Fatima Hospitals. There's a lot to talk about there, but let let me just say this: they're owned by a company that doesn't care about healthcare. It isn't keeping up with their obligations to those hospitals. I've got forty million dollars to try to prop them up, but that won't prop them up forever. There are some structural reasons why they're in trouble, even if they weren't owned by Prospect. That we've got to fix, and we can't fix. But we can't fix them if we don't apply the leverage of government. What does that mean? It's, if those hospitals close, and they will either close in 2026 or come to the General Assembly for a bailout, not once, but year over year, they'll effectively would have to be public hospitals. There's no appetite for that. So if we don't change it, they'll close. And not only is that a loss to the people who use those hospitals right now, our other hospitals are going to be overrun. They can't handle the uh, the amount of patients and the amount of work that goes in those hospitals. And so we've got to fix healthcare, um, and we're working hard to come up with a strategy to do it. And I would encourage anyone who wants to talk about healthcare, healthcare to come meet Sarah Rice and Julia Harvey. We used to have lawyers doing healthcare. Now we have healthcare lawyers doing healthcare. And it's a difference. There's a difference between having lawyers doing healthcare work and healthcare lawyers doing healthcare work. And that's what we have now. So so we are strategizing there to try to fix healthcare overall. The other thing I'm really worried about is our inability to recruit primary care doctors to Rhode Island. I lost mine this week. Um, you know, it, it, it is an ongoing problem of a failure to recruit, a failure to reimburse. It's happening everywhere, but it's worse in Rhode Island because our reimbursement rates commercially, commercial insurance, Medicare and Medicaid are, are beneath uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts. So people often talk about healthcare coming into Rhode Island and ruining Rhode Island healthcare. The real problem is the exodus of healthcare in the form of primary care doctors. And that's something I'm really worried about. Green energy, blue economy, it's a broad topic that you've been involved in. I guess one thing that really popped up was you used the bully pulpit to kind of influence the Rhode Island Department of Transportation in uh, sort of setting their climate goals. They've moved into a, a position that's a little bit more realistic in terms of meeting the metrics and the benchmarks that we've got coming down the pipeline in 2030 and beyond. But, you know, right now, where does it sit in your mind in terms of the realistic effort to become carbon neutral or at least move towards looking like as a state, not necessarily the average person, not the average civilian, but as a state, we're heading in the right direction in terms of leadership? Yeah, look, I think we're not going to hit our goals, and our goals aren't just theoretical. They're real and they're important. So, so I think what I try to do is always contrast what we're doing with what the benchmark ought to be. And I give great credit 
to government in Massachusetts. I tweeted that out this week because I'm trying to draw attention to these issues. I'm trying to advance issues forward. Massachusetts gave itself a climate report card, I think either earlier this week or late last week. It's on the front page of the Globe. And, and the state came out, state of Massachusetts came out and said, here's our report card. Here's how we're doing. We're doing well in some areas. We're not doing enough in some others. Okay. And so that's the kind of realistic assessment we need to do in Rhode Island. So, for example, they know how many heat pumps they need to get in Massachusetts homes to hit the client goals. We don't know that and we have no plan to do it. They know how many um, electric charging stations they need to get in place to get people into electric cars so they'll be confident that they can get where they're going. We don't, we're not, we don't have that kind of data. We're not giving ourselves report cards. What we are doing is giving ourselves fake report cards. So, for example, the Department of Transportation came out last week and said they were 11th out of, out of 50 states, okay, when it came to um, overall climate, uh, climate work in, in, tra- in transportation and across the board. The problem with being 11th out of 50, the problem with that is when 40 states aren't playing, or 30 states aren't playing, excuse me, you're 11th out of 20. So what do I mean when I say 30 states aren't playing? Well, it was a scorecard that DOT was relying on, where if you have climate goals, you get a certain number of points. Okay, well, 30 states don't have climate goals. So now we're 11th out of 20. Assuming that's the metric we want to use, we're mediocre. Rhode Island can't afford mediocrity in anything, not in healthcare, not in climate, not in energy. We have to do better. Jamestown Press has a story on these solar farm, uh, pardon me, these solar firms that you've been warning against. We had one of these guys on the on the podcast. They insisted on coming on when they did earlier this year. They had a PowerPoint presentation laying out how great they were and how they're going to save the world. When in fact, it really appears to be a huge scam. Uh, your comments on the solar salespeople going up and down sometimes rural roads and kind of harassing people to install solar panels on their roof and lose a bunch of money. Yeah, look, we have one case open against a solar company. I think it's the one you're referring to. We have four other investigations. You know, my biggest concern, uh, Bill, is that people, uh, salespeople like this that are unregulated in Rhode Island, you don't have to be licensed to sell solar. You have to be licensed to install it. You have to be licensed, um, you know, as a contractor to install it, but not to sell it. And so what I worry about is that is these scams will uh, discourage people who want to do solar from doing it because they're afraid of being scammed. So we have to do better as a state uh, to encourage people uh, to do it, while at the same time assuring them they're not going to get ripped off. And that's why I'm so concerned about these companies. Last question, what letter grade would you give to the General Assembly in terms of the action on shoreline access this year? And taking a look at the fire districts and other entities that are really, in some cases, have no fire suppression services or anything like that. They're just kind of there to block the public from getting access to the shore. How does that area get addressed in 2024? Well, well, I think I think we've done a really good job. I give the General Assembly a lot of credit, you know, and a lot of things. I think the Speaker of the Senate President, particularly by investing in my office, uh, have made an investment um uh, for the people of the state of Rhode Island. So I'm very grateful for those 15 positions that they awarded us uh, that in fact we're paying for out of our opioid legal fees. So people of the state of Rhode Island get 15 people coming to work every day that I'm paying for, but are working for them. But I wouldn't have those positions uh, unless, um, unless the General Assembly gave me the positions to put people in. I pay for them, 
but I needed a position to put them in. So back to their work on public access, excellent for horizontal access. So meaning walking along the shoreline, we're being sued over it, but I'm confident we can defend those suits well. Vertical access, mean, meaning getting to the shoreline in the first place, uh, there are procedures in place um, by which um, to be able to accomplish that historically through historic grants to the public to get there, but many times pri- you know, the, uh, private landowners try to block those. So we're involved in a bunch of those around the state. We've been uh, accomplished it in a public street um, in Providence and Newport and Warwick and other places. We're in litigation to accomplish it in Westerly and places like that. I agree with you. The fire districts are a curious entity, and I'm not quite sure yet how to skin that cat, but we're working on it. Attorney General Peter Narona, thanks so much for your time. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Bill. Talk to you soon. We're brought to you in part by Half Street Group, who bring a new generation's perspective to leadership communications, strategic public relations, and digital marketing. Half Street helps organizations and leaders take control of their own stories and manage their reputations. They get results for their clients by focusing on audience, message, and culture, and by leveraging their decade-long relationship with media and opinion leaders in the Ocean State and throughout New England. Join me and Half Street Group founder and president Mike Rea for a conversation every month about news of the day, the hottest media analysis, and a look behind the scenes at how impactful leaders drive conversations. Learn more at halfstreetgroup.com. We're also brought to you by Navigant Credit Union. As Rhode Island's first ever member-owned credit union, Navigant Credit Union has been a staple in the local business community for more than 108 years. Today, Navigant is a $3.4 billion institution serving more than 136,000 members across 25 physical branch locations. But since its founding in 1915, the mission has never changed. Navigant Credit Union's team of financial professionals have remained committed to improving the financial well-being of the families, businesses, and communities they serve across Rhode Island. Learn more at NavigantCU.org. And we're brought to you by CCA Health Rhode Island. Commonwealth Care Alliance, or CCA, is a multi-state integrated care system influencing innovative models of complex care nationwide. CCA's Uncommon Care model focuses on sustainable and evidence-based healthcare breakthroughs that improve the health and well-being of people with significant needs and is consistently recognized as one of the best models in the country at identifying and serving traditionally hard-to-reach individuals. CCA is excited to bring Uncommon Care to Rhode Islanders with a range of Medicare Advantage plans. Learn more at commonwealthcarealliance.org backslash Rhode Island. Support the Bartholomew Town Podcast for as little as $3 per month at patreon.com slash Bartholomew Town.